Today's um, scripture is from Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for this beautiful morning. Thank you for the cooler weather and the promise of even more cooler weather this week. We thank you for this um, facility you've provided for us to meet in, to gather, to worship you, um, and just to speak about the love and the greatness of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we could just settle in right now and um, set aside all distractions and just let the Holy Spirit speak to us um, as Zach brings your word. Lord, please help my boy preach well this morning. It's your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> Good morning. Um, yeah, so my name's Zach. I'm a community group leader here at Bible Church. We've been a part of uh, PBC. Uh, from the beginning, me and my wife, Tara, uh, our community group's in Central Phoenix. Um, and uh, I'm uh, really excited to uh, get a chance to uh, preach uh, this morning, continuing our series in Titus. Uh, so we've been working through the book of Titus. It's a letter that's written by the Apostle Paul uh, to a pastor of a new church, a young church. I kind of talked about that a few weeks ago. It's a new young church in a uh, setting uh, that is not particularly favorable to Christianity. Um, and he's giving instructions to this pastor that also will be read to the church to give them some ideas on how to live as a Christian, a new Christian, how to uh, come together as a church to be able to uh, proclaim the gospel in a less than friendly environment, a more hostile environment. And so, uh, so far, as we've gone through, uh, Paul addressed the character requirements required of leaders and also uh, of Christians. Uh, he has uh, addressed the uh, proper behavior of believers and the relations with each other as far as age groups and things like that, of what are the responsibilities of young men, young women, older men, older women. Um, and then today we're turning to how do we as a church interact with those outside the church, the civic governments, people who aren't believers, we start to see, okay, how does this church now, they know how to interact with each other. How do they now take that, interact with those outside of the church? One of the primary themes within this, this letter is this idea of this inseparable link between belief and behavior or between faith and practice. This idea that 
when faith in Jesus comes, it has to be coupled with a change in behavior. Something changes in you. It's not just a philosophy that you agree with in a vacuum, but it actually affects your life. It changes your life. It changes how you behave. It changes what you think about the world, how you view the world. So with that, I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, and then we'll go ahead and start working our way through the passage. So chapter 3, verse 1 says, Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. Some of you are already lowering up. You're already like, all right, what's he going to say? How am I going to come back on that? How am I going to find my way out of this? I did it too when I read the passage. So let's open our hearts, open our minds, what Scripture says, wrestle with that. Generally, if you disagree with Scripture, you're on the wrong side of it. So uh, if you disagree, that's okay. That's, that's why we say Scripture, is to change our hearts. So rulers and authorities, what is that? What does that mean? It means the rulers and authorities. There's nothing tricky about that. It's the civic government. That's what he's talking about. Paul's reminding them. So at some point, he's already instructed them, or Titus has already instructed them on this idea of submission to civic governance. And Paul's just saying to remind them of this. Now you have to remember, the local authorities on the island of Crete, they were pagans who were underneath the government of the Roman Empire who were pagans. So this isn't like this idea of like, Paul's like, obey your rulers because they love Jesus and they're good for you. He's saying, be submissive to your rulers and authorities. And he doesn't give a list afterwards of, unless they, there's no kind of exclusionary list. He just says, be submissive. Now, obviously, we, we have to take that, look at what other scripture says to figure out what does that mean exactly. But what it's, what he's telling you and what, what's important to notice is there's not a list afterwards. There's not like, be submissive unless they do this or this or this or this. Paul's instructions indicate that a civil government, a civil authority, is actually part of God's overall order for society. By acknowledging it, by saying to be submissive to it, Paul's saying that, that governing, governing is a good thing and it's part of God's plan for society. It's an idea that goes back, that, that God's okay with. It's not something that we've made up that we should rebel against. Sometimes we kind of have these two different ideas of government and some maybe wrong responses to them. So one is this idea that sometimes people will say, well, I don't, you know, I don't, I don't answer to the government. I answer to God. Well, God placed those in authority over you, so you answer to them because you answer to God. So you can't simply just cast off government because you don't agree with them or because you think they're unbiblical. God's placed them there for a reason. That reason may be to sanctify you and may make you to grow you in your faith of what you believe. But regardless, there is a call for submission there. The other side of it's kind of this blind, like gung-ho, like, you know, apple pie, baseball, and Jesus Christ. It's all one thing. Like, if we're American, we're Christian. That's not a good option either to just blindly be like, yeah, government, sweet, high five. Go after them. In between is this balance, this idea of submission. Submission doesn't mean automatically agreeing with everything that happens. It doesn't mean being a doormat. Um, in fact, this idea of submission, it's the same word that, that Paul uses when he's talking about a relationship between a husband and wife, between a husband and their children. 
this idea of, of obedience, but not being a doormat, not being subject to abuse. Um, and so with that said, guys, specifically, since this is the same instruction, for you to be unwilling to submit to governmental authority is not just hypocritical, but it's sinful, especially if you expect your wife and your kids to submit to you, and you look at those passages and go like, submission, this is good, I'm, I'm the head, but then you're unwilling to submit to the authority over you, that's hypocritical and sinful. So this is an important issue. It's not just a matter of, of kind of dealing with it and understanding, oh, okay, yeah, I can put up with it. No, it's the same idea of submission that is expected from wives and from children. So men, if you're unwilling to submit to authority, you're, you're hypocritical and sinful to expect the same from your, husband, from your wife, from your kids. And he says to be obedient. So what does that mean, obedient? Does that mean we have to do everything the government says? We have to completely accept everything the government says. I don't think so. Uh, it's not a blind, unquestioning obedience. Uh, if you think about uh, the stories in Scripture, in Acts chapter 5, some of the apostles are pulled before the, the civic government, and they're told to quit preaching the gospel. And Peter's response in verse 29 is basically like, should I obey man or should I obey God? The obvious answer is to obey God. It's not a blind obedience to do whatever you want. Obviously, we have to line up what our government places over us as laws with what Scripture says, with Scripture being the overall authority. We understand that though civic government is a good thing that's in place by God, it doesn't mean that those people that are there are infallible and that we have to be blindly obedient to it. But again, also, there's not a list of reasons why not to be submissive to the government here. Uh, and we have to be really careful not to conflate our preferences with biblical instruction. We can uh, maybe make some biblical arguments for a certain type of uh, economic system, certain laws, things like that, but we have to be very, very careful when we're, when we're walking that line of at what point is it, well, we have a disagreement in how things should happen versus we have a government that's at odds with what Scripture says. I think it's safe to say most of us tend to take what our own preferences are and kind of spiritualize those because we feel like we're right and then maybe make those absolutes. We need to be careful not to let those two things conflate. And so this idea of obedience is an idea of being obedient to the Scriptures first, government second, and then not taking what we think is our own personal preferences and making those Scripture. But really, the big thing we need to be aware of here in this, this first part of these uh, verses is this idea of being ready for every good work. So it says, our responsibility as Christians has to go beyond just a passive obedience of laws. It talks about being ready for every good work. We need to have an active involvement in our society. Activism is the responsibility of a Christian when government or society puts in place systems that fail to recognize the value of a human life. Things that are going on in our country right now the Black Lives Matter movement, Blue Lives Matter movement, everything that's happening there, Christians can't just turn their head and ignore that. We need to stop and take a look. We need to listen to people who say that they feel like their life is not as valued as other lives in our country and see what can we do as Christians to help change that. Because every one of us is made in the image of God. We have equal worth, we have equal value. And in that, we need to figure out how we can be involved in that. We need to take the gospel, the truth of the gospel, that all people are made in the image of God and bring it to these arguments. 
bring it to these discussions. Be involved. We can't just hide. We can't just sit there and watch it on CNN and be like, eh, I'm not involved in that. I'm not, I'm not a police officer. I'm not African-American. It's not my problem. Then we come to verse 2. The first thing he says is to speak evil of no one. Gulp. So Paul now broadens the scope to all people, not just rulers and authorities. Though I think if he hadn't broadened the scope, we could all be just as guilty of speaking evil of rulers and authorities. The word behind this is the same idea that we pull the word blasphemy from when we talk about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. It's the same idea. It's this like speaking evil intent towards people, speaking malice, speaking things that are untrue, that are wicked. We need to really check our hearts before we hit post, before we hit send, before we say something, before we tweet. Why are we saying this? Are we saying it to disagree with a point, or are we saying it to attack the character of a person? Tying hand in hand to this, this idea of avoiding quarrels. We as Christians, in general, we've earned a reputation as being quarrelsome. And it's not an unfair reputation. More specifically, our particular theological lane, we, we wear it as a badge of honor sometimes. We're like, yeah, we fight, man. Five points, tulip, we're going to fight. This is my struggle. I'm a seminarian. I went to seminary. I teach at a Bible school now. I love the academic side of the study of Bible. It makes me like to argue. I like to fight. I like to win. Um, it's not healthy. It doesn't do any good for anyone. I mean, <laughs> to be real honest, 15 minutes ago in the doorway, I was starting to get into an argument about politics with my dad. <laughs> before church, before I preach, I was like, let's fight, let's do it. All right, let's talk about it. Let's talk about it. I was ready to go. Fortunately, Pastor Tim was there and uh, stepped in and was like, yeah, good way to prepare your heart. So I mean, that's, that, this is what we're like, this isn't just in a vacuum for me, all right? I read this this week and I was like, ugh, and I clearly didn't get it this week. So I still have some work to do there. But we need to avoid quarrels. We need to try to find ways to not be constantly fighting. We need to not have our reputation as Christians be one of, of ones who like to fight. Um, we should be willing to defer to others, even if it means relinquishing our own rights. Oh, that's so un-American, relinquishing our own rights. It's hard. But this isn't the same as condoning. So don't, don't, don't misconstrue not fighting with giving approval of something. There's times where we need to defer to people, where we need to choose not to fight, because it's more important not to fight than it is to be right sometimes. And that we need to realize that just by not disagreeing with someone doesn't mean that we're condoning that person's thoughts, actions. Especially things like Facebook make this really easy. We insert ourselves into fights that have nothing to do with us. I mean, I see it all the time. I see something, you know, maybe a, a pastor posts something, and someone will comment underneath like, oh, well, this pastor must know everything. It's his decision. It's his whatever he thinks is, must be right. We, we immediately insert ourselves into a fight that had nothing to do with us. We like to fight. We just do. And it's hard to give that up. It's important, though, that we give that up, that we avoid quarrels. Paul tells us to do that here as Christians. And then he kind of wraps up 
this verse by saying that we need to show perfect courtesy. So this idea of uh, perfect courtesy, it's kind of like true humility. This is a phrase that's often used to describe Jesus. It's listed as a fruit of the Spirit. So what Paul's saying here at the end of it is like, here's some things to do, but basically like, be like Jesus. He's a good example for us to see how do we interact with a civil government with an authority that, that doesn't line up with Scripture. We see him do it all the time when he deals with the Pharisees. It also provides a summary statement of these things, but also looks forward to what, what Paul's about to dive into. And that's really uh, what I want to take a look at today, what's really important. And so humility is having a right view of yourself and understanding who God is, understanding your place. And so for those of us that have forgotten, for those uh, in Crete that had forgotten, Paul reminds us in verses 3 through 7. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So when we're approaching this topic of interacting with non-believers, how do we submit to a non-Christian government, all these different questions, the, the place we need to start is to remember that we ourselves once were. The very things that we are most often inclined to point out in our civic leaders as flaws, the things that we are most inclined to fight about with other non-Christians are the exact things that we once were. So I want you to take a second, I want you to stop right now and think back on your life before Jesus saved you. Think about the foolishness, the disobedience, the lustful passions. Not just the actions you did, but the heart you had. The way you viewed the world. Some of you, that may be hard to think back and remember much of your life before Jesus. Um, perhaps you're like me. I was, I was very blessed to have been saved at a very young age. When I come to verses like this, instead of looking back on, on my five-year-old self, I, I look at the sin that's been in my life throughout the years and think about what that would look like if it was unrestrained by the Holy Spirit. The passions I would have pursued headlong, the destruction I would have pursued, the things I would have just consumed without any hesitation. Think about that. Think about who you were before Jesus. And so right after Paul brings us to this point, reminds us of just the mess that our lives would be without Jesus. Verse 4, he says, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. You notice there's nothing in between those two slots. There's no point of saying when you cleaned your life up, when you stopped doing those things, then the goodness appeared. In the midst of your mess is when God showed up. It's when God came, not with judgment, not with wrath, but with goodness and loving kindness. 
So though we were all once slaves to sin and enemies of God, he still appeared with us, to us with loving kindness. Now, if a perfect, holy, loving God is willing to come to you and show grace and kindness to you in your mess, how much more should we, who aren't perfect and holy, be willing to show grace to others who are still living a life in pursuit of sin? God does not, did not, and, and will not need you. He freely, out of his sovereign will, chose to bring you into his family, if you're a believer, if you believe in Jesus. There's nothing we did to earn it. Paul moves on, verse 5, to say that. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Paul reminds us, we didn't do anything to earn our salvation, to save ourselves. Not a single work, decision, prayer, book you read, anything saved you. For all of these things are works done by us, done by man. They can't bring about salvation on their own. We can't bring salvation on our own. Um, Jonathan Edwards, who's a Puritan preacher, most of you probably, if you are familiar with him, know about his angry sermon about sinners in the hands of an angry God. Um, but he has a great quote talking about this. He says it this way. He says, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So with all that in mind, how can you possibly turn to someone who doesn't know Jesus and treat them with disdain, with disgust, with frustration? The only thing, the only line separating you from them is God's grace, is what God did for you. You haven't done anything to merit that. You haven't done anything to earn that. So you have no reason for pride. The Holy Spirit, through the work of Christ, has washed you clean. He's regenerated you. That word regeneration literally means rebirth you to become a new person. So God not only came and kind of washed you off and cleaned you up, he made you new. What you were before, you're not anymore. That's dead. It's gone. You're a new person. Your heart's been changed. It's been regenerated and washed by the Holy Spirit. It's only because of God's work in our heart that we can even confess our sins, that we can repent and we can recognize Jesus as Lord. We were like sheep that were lost, and the shepherd came and found us. Sheep don't find their way back on their own. The shepherd has to go out and find them and bring them back. We were orphans, lost to follow lustful passions. And God chose to step into our lives and, and change our hearts so that those passions were no longer our passions, but that we recognize them as sinful. That's good news. That's really good news. That may sound like, oh man, I'm nothing. I'm, I'm not anything. It's good news because it means we also, we can't screw it up. We can't mess it up. If we didn't earn it, if we didn't do it, we can't mess it up. God's the one that holds our salvation. He's the one that seals us. He's the one that changed us. It's not like we can go back to being the old person because that person's dead. We've been reborn, a new person. And God didn't hold back at all in what it cost him to do this for us. Paul says that he poured out richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, this idea of pouring out the Holy Spirit to us through Jesus Christ. The renewal only comes from Christ. 
renewal in your personal life, in your family, in this nation, whatever you see as broken only comes through Christ. There's not other options. There's not self-help methods that are going to help you. There's not other religions that are going to help you. The only place that something that is dead and slave to sin and can become alive again is through Jesus. God didn't hold back and only partially pay the debt of our sin or um, maybe find a way for us to work our way into being in his good graces. God gave everything that was required for us to be able to have a relationship with him. When Jesus came, lived with his creation, lived a sinless life, and died a death he did not deserve as a substitution for the death that we did deserve. And so through that, we're now justified. It's the word Paul uses here. It's a legal term. It's like being in a court. That's what this term is. We've been justified by his grace that we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I kind of already mentioned this a little bit, but if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, you're justified. A legal declaration has been made by God the Father freeing you from the debt of your sin. It's been decided. Doesn't mean we're perfect. Doesn't mean we can continue to live the lives we lived to pursue the passions that we currently have. We need to continue to have our hearts shaped, our wills changed by Scripture. But we're, we're, we're justified. We're declared free of debt. So, in doing this, not only do our good works not earn our salvation, they don't keep our salvation. It's not like Jesus saves you and then you have to do good things to keep God's wrath at bay. That's not the point here. That's not what Paul's talking about here when he talks about doing good works. The decision's already been made. You've been declared righteous, guilt, guiltless by the Father, by the judge. So if we're not compelled to do good works to earn salvation, we're not compelled to do works to keep salvation, why do we do good works? Why does the Bible talk about doing good works so often if it doesn't matter? Well, it does matter. It's not that it doesn't matter. It's that it doesn't earn us our salvation. It doesn't put us into the family of God. We're compelled to good works not to keep God's wrath at bay. That's what lots of other false religions believe. Knock on as many doors as you can. Do as many prayers as you can perform these sacrifices, give these things, give this money, do all these things. All that's to keep God happy. You move into even pagan religions where it's like you got to plant corn a certain way and then do a certain dance in this field to make sure you get rain. We're free from all of that. We don't have to do any of that. We're compelled to do good works out of the joy that results in our salvation. Our good works are not to gain merit for ourselves, but rather to proclaim the glory of God and our thankfulness at being saved. So when we do good works, we shouldn't be doing it to build our own reputation. We're not doing it to earn any sort of salvation or stay in salvation. We're doing it because we've been saved. We're free. Our debt's been forgiven. Think about that. A debt you could never, ever pay. Put a number on it. Whatever that amount of money is for you, a million dollars, a billion dollars, whatever, our national budget. We could never pay that debt. And God stepped in and said, done, you're forgiven. You don't know anything. I've paid the debt. It wasn't that it was costless, it's that it didn't cost us. 
That's why we do good works. That's why we respond with praise, with thanksgiving, with joy, because we've been set free. If you have been set free from something, you should be happy about that. You guys should be happy about that. Blank stares right now. Like, come on. Like, I know I'm not that excitable a person, but I'm loud right now. Like, you guys have heard me preach before. Like, we're set free. Do you get that? I don't think you do. Like, man, like, I don't have to do anything else. I don't have to, to be good at my job or good at anything. God loves me. He's accepted me. We're in. That's good news. That's why we do good works, because we should be thankful of that. We want to share that with the world. That's why we do good works. And the best part about it is this idea of justification doesn't even just stop at making your debt zero. It's not like you came in and you had a million dollar debt and it went to zero. God came in and said, I'm going to forgive you your debt. And only that, I'm going to make you an heir to my kingdom. What? That, I mean, let's take it just in completely into the financial realm. You have millions of dollars of debt. You have no way out of it. You don't know what you're going to do. Warren Buffett shows up at your door, knocks on the door. You've never met him. You might have read about him on CNN. Okay, whatever. He knocks on the door. He's like, hey, I'm going to pay off your debt right now. And then not only that, I'm going to make you, I'm going to put you on the will. Make you an heir. Cool. Okay. Yeah, I'll do that. How much more? The creator of the universe has done that for us. He's forgiven our debt and everything that we couldn't pay off, but then he's also brought us into his family to make him, us an heir to, the, to his kingdom. <clears throat> Got so excited, I lost my notes. So there's a couple heirs that come with that, though, too. There's a couple things when we think about becoming heirs that, that we don't want to jump into these two categories because we will find ourselves disappointed because what God promises us Sometimes this is what we expect. So we need to be sure we, that when we read that we're heirs, we know what that means. So uh, the first heir is kind of the, uh, for, for lack of a better phrase, the best, your best life now idea. That like everything's going to be awesome right now. Boom. Prosperity, health, everything, because you're part of God's family. That's not necessarily a promise. In fact, the exact opposite is promise. Jesus is like, you're going to suffer in this life for, for following me. It's not going to be a smooth sailing, easy thing. Um, we need to be careful not to expect that everything's going to be perfect and easy now. We have a, a future to look forward to. It talks about a hope in eternal life. That's a long time. Eternal is a long time. It's more about a quality of life over the long term. It's not an immediate, perfect, awesome thing. It doesn't mean God's not going to bless you in this life, but it means we can't kind of demand that of God. Like, you told me you're going to bless me. What's going on? We have been blessed. The other idea I've already talked about is this idea of we've kind of been set to zero. That's the other option we, we kind of go and we've been saved. It's like, oh, okay, we're, my debt's paid. I'm zeroed out. Now, now I've got to work to kind of keep that ledger even. You know, like I've got to do some good works for when I mess up. I gotta repent, and maybe if it's really bad, like call my community group leader or Pastor Tim, and then uh, you know. But then if I do some like good things, we'll kind of balance it out. Like that's that's a bad idea too. I've already kind of talked about that a little bit. Those are two errors we have when we think of being kind of heirs and being saved. 
the idea is eternal life is not simply about the length of life, but the quality of it. That we can look forward to a day where Christ returns, where he sets right this earth, where he is ruling and reigning over this earth, where sin, death, strife, it's all gone. That's what we can look forward to. That's the inheritance that we have, is to be a part of the kingdom of God when it is fully brought to earth. So let's again think about this. We, wretched sinners, carrying a debt we could never pay, we've been absolved of our sins and given Christ's righteousness by making us a part of the family of God. And so for those of you who are here who maybe aren't Christians and you're like, what is this guy so excited about? And why is he yelling? And it kind of sounds good, so I'm interested because he's really excited. What does that look like? Simply what's required of us is faith. And with that, there's obviously a link to our behavior. We've talked about that already, that, that your behavior changes because of your faith. But if, if you feel that pull, that kind of idea right now, like, yeah, that sounds pretty good. That's not me being a good, uh, you know, communicator, salesman, whatever you want to call it. Like, I'm not, not. Um, what that is, that's the Holy Spirit. What we're talking about here, regenerating, that's the Holy Spirit working on your heart right now. So if you do kind of feel the pull, like, man, I don't know really totally about Jesus, but like, this seems like this rings true with me. You can stop listening to me and start praying and all that is talking and just start talking to Jesus, admitting that you need to have your debt paid, that you want to become a part of the family of God. And if you're doing that afterwards, come talk to Tim or me or a community group leader or anyone out there with a lanyard, like talk to us, tell us. We can talk with you and kind of explain more what that means than just like, hey, you said a prayer and move on. So then going back to this, the text here, verse eight, the saying is trustworthy and I want you to insist on these things, that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. So Paul kind of summarizes what he's been saying here. He says, these sayings are trustworthy. If you go back to the beginning of Titus, Paul writes, God cannot lie. These are trustworthy because they're coming from a holy, perfect God who cannot lie. It's not in his character to lie. Everything that proceeds from his mouth is truth. And so we can trust in these things. We can trust when God says that I will redeem you, that I'll save you, not of your own works, but of my works, and bring you to my family. We can trust that because God does not lie. And then he says, and I want you to insist on these things. So he's telling Titus this, but in the process of this, this letter is going to be read to the churches in Crete. And in the same way, us as a church, these are the things we need to insist on. We need to insist on submission to authority. We need to submit or to insist in not speaking evil. That can't be taken lightly. Paul's saying insist on these things. As Christians, do not speak evil. Submit to authority. We must insist on a salvation that comes not of our own works, but from God alone. These are essential behaviors and beliefs of the Christian life. These are the core things. These are the things we need to fight for. These are the things that need to be markers of us as a church. That we're not quarrelsome. That we love people. That our good works aren't meant to earn merit for our own, but 
their joyful response to what God's done for us. That we came to Christ with empty hands and nothing to bring, and the only reason we came to him is because he drew us to him. We need to be careful to devote ourselves to these things, to good works. Christianity is not, it's an individual faith, but it doesn't happen alone. Does that make sense? You have to be the one that has your heart changed to become a Christian. But then it can't be left at that. It has to affect people around you. It has to. Your life has to change. You have to be devoted to good works. People should know you're a Christian. If for nothing else, because you don't fight with them all the time and because you're nice to them. Like, start there. That would make you stand out in most places right now. I work in a restaurant. That makes me really weird. They're like, you're nice. Okay. Like, what? Little things. Start there. It's not this crazy, you don't need to go out and, like, start this great foundation and change millions of lives. Like, just say hi to your neighbor. Be nice to people that you disagree with. Try to avoid fighting about politics. Why? Because these things are excellent. They're profitable for all people. They're not just good for you. When you do good works, it's not just good for you. It's good for all people. The kind of theological term behind that is common grace. This idea that like, we have a specific grace that's been revealed to us, that's been given to us to be saved as Christians. But then through just God's involvement in the world and and us being saved, there's this idea of common grace, that, that all people are going to experience some form of grace from God, whether it's an interaction with you or from just even the, the beauty of the earth that God created for us. Like, those are all like God showing grace to his creation. It's profitable for all people when you live a life that lines up with your belief. So what do we boil this all down to? Can I talk about what we do how we, I talked about, I started out talking about submitting to government authorities, why we're saved, how we're saved, what that means for us. What it boils down to, if, if nothing else sticks in there today, it's this, our faith and practice are inseparably linked. If we proclaim Christ and are regenerated people, we behave differently. Not we should, we do. Your heart's been changed. Doesn't mean we're perfect, not even close. Trust me, ask my wife, not even close, but our heart's been changed. And we do things not to make God happier with us. We do things because God already is happy with us. So this is what it means. This is, in wrapping up, this is what it means. And we, you might hear this phrase around here sometimes, this idea of uh, applying the gospel to a situation, to our life. We say, what does the gospel say about that? Your community group leader might say that, and you're like, ah, what? This is what we're talking about. The gospel, when we think of it, obviously, is the, the, the story and how God saved us. But then how do we apply that? This is how we apply it. We actually have practices that line up with our faith. There's not one aspect of our reality that hasn't been marred by sin and is in need of the gospel. And so the gospel does not simply change our minds about God. It's not a simple mental ascent. That may be where it starts, that you acknowledge God as God, that you acknowledge Jesus as your savior. 
that the Holy Spirit changes your heart. But it goes beyond that. It redeems our behavior, not just our lives. Remember this through November when you're thinking of our civic government and politics and our interactions with non-believers. We cannot claim Christ and then treat believers and non-believers in different ways. We have to remember who we were and remember that the only dividing line between us and someone who's a non-believer is God's movement and changing of our lives. And in that, we need to respond accordingly. Our faith may be individual, but it's not isolated. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that instructs us, that helps us to see what the implications are of our faith, what happens when we come to faith. Father, I, I repent of my desire to fight, to quarrel, to disagree with people, to want to be right. Help me with that. Help us to see just that, that inseparable link that, that because we've been redeemed, our behavior changes. And it's not a matter of trying harder so that you love us more. Thank God it's not that, because you would not love me more. Thank you that it's simply just a response to what's already been done. Father, help our church to be known as a church that loves people, that is grateful for what God has done in our lives and that we're just unable to act in any other way than what's a reasonable response of joy. Thank you for not only forgiving our debt, but bringing us into your family, making us heirs to your kingdom. Help us look back on who we were before you and that it would just fill us with joy that you chose to change us and save us from that and the destruction we could have brought upon ourselves. Remind us of that when we worship, when we sing, when we pray, when we read our Bibles, God, that you have redeemed us, that you have brought us back from just terrible destruction. Convict us in areas where there still is a pull, where there still is a desire to chase after those lustful passions, to chase after those things that are not biblical. When we come across scriptures we don't like, God, soften our hearts to submit to you and your word and not to our own will and what our culture and society tells us. Thank you for giving us Jesus. Jesus, thank you for submitting yourself to abuse, to murder, to redeem the very people that are guilty of your murder. Holy Spirit, thank you for changing our hearts, for taking us from being dead to being alive. Fill our lives with joy and gratefulness for that. We love you.